In this week's parsha, when the brothers returned to Yaakov uh, for the first time without Shimon, so they tell him that the conditions for returning to Mitzrayim to purchase more food and to get Shimon back is that they have to bring Binyamin with them so that uh, the uh, Shalit, the Viceroy, might lay eyes upon Binyamin. When Yaakov refuses, so his Bechor, Reuven, makes him an offer. If I don't bring him back to you, you put my two sons to death. So, give him to me, rely upon me, I'll bring him back. Yaakov dismisses the offer, seemingly not even responding to its substance, but rather giving a reason that would suggest that he would never allow Binyamin to go. You can't go down with you. Because an accident might happen. After a period of time passes and the food stocks begin to dwindle, Yaakov asks his sons to go down to Egypt one more time. And then Yehuda replies to him, reminding him of Yosef's stipulation that they have to bring Binyamin with them. After some further dialogue, Yehuda says to his father, Send it with me, we shall arise and go, we shall survive and not die. We, you, and our children. Anochi Ervenu, I will guarantee him. I will be the Arif. Miyadita Bakshana, from my hand you will demand him. Imlohabi Yosifelacha, if I don't bring him back, Yitzaitilafanach and present him to you. Bihatasi Bakhakalayamin. I will have sinned to you all of the days. So what changed? Yaakov agrees. Why is it that Yaakov accepts Buddha's offer? after having rejected Ruvain's offer. If the concern really was that a tragedy would befall him, what has changed? There are three general possibilities that come to mind, at least conceptually speaking. One is that the distinction was a product of the personalities behind the guarantee. Two is that circumstances had changed between the time of Ruvain's offer and that of Yehuda's offer. And three, that there was something in the substance of the offers that was so fundamentally different that Yaakov was willing to accept Yehudas but rejected Ruvain's. The first possibility, the difference between Ruvain and Yehuda. As Yaakov's brachos at the end of his life made clear, he was far less enamored of Ruvain than he was of Yehuda. His blessing to Ruvain on his deathbed was a rebuke, while his blessing to Yehuda was effusive, to put it quite, you know, to put it mildly. Ironic at first glance, by the way, because in this context, it was Ruben who was the one who tried to save Yosef from being sold, and it was Yehuda who had the brilliant idea of selling him. Yet on the other hand, Yehuda accomplished what he set out to do, while Ruben failed. And while Yaakov was not aware of these events, certainly not at this point, it would seem that he was perceptive enough to understand the difference between these two children of his. In this vein, the Sifsei Chachomim and Rashi explains that with Ruvain, Yaakov was afraid that Binyamin would be seized and Ruvain would be unable to stop it, but that Yehuda would give up his life if necessary to protect Binyamin. 
Second possibility is that the circumstances had changed. The Torah tells us, Rashi comments, Kasher Kilu Lachol. Yehuda Amar Lahem. Yehuda said to his brothers, Hamtinu Lazakin at Shetichla Paspen Abayas. Wait for our, our old father until there's no more food in the house. Then he'll change his too. Yehuda understood that as long as there was food around, Yaakov would focus primarily on the danger of travel, the danger to the Yemen from traveling, and that, that would guide his decision making process. But once the food was running out, Yaakov would be forced to focus on the danger to his entire household. No food would mean that they all would die, including the Yemen. In other words, in life, just as in comedy, timing is everything. The third possibility is that there was something substantially different about the offers, for one reason or another. Yaakov found Ruben's offer to be insufficient or unacceptable, whereas who does he could consider? Rashi writes with respect to Ruven's offer, Lo Lo Omar He's a foolish firstborn. Who Omer He says he'll put his two sons to death. They're not my children also. I would like to suggest a different approach than Rashi, but still utilizing this third framework. That there was a substantial difference between the offers. What was that difference? Reuven's offer was that if he lost Yaakov's child, Yaakov would make him lose his children. On the surface, this is kind of a midah k'neged midah, poetic justice, uh, that is embodied in this offer. But at its core, it is fundamentally transactional. If I do this to you, you do this to me, and we're even. Yehuda's offer, on the other hand, was anything but transactional. In fact, on the surface, it's not clear what he was offering. What does it mean, the chatasi kol hayamim? How do you pay that in Basin? How do you calculate that? Sin is usually viewed as something in God's bailiwick. And to the extent that someone else has been harmed, an apology must be made and compensation, if relevant, paid. Chazal explained, though, that Yehuda, where he failed to, fail to bring back Benyamin, accepted upon himself excommunication from his father in this world and kol hayamim, in the world to come. This is not some type of quid pro quo. Rather, it was a recognition that their entire relationship was at stake if he failed to bring back Benjamin. Ruvain's offer was transactional. It suggested a failure to understand what was at stake. Yehuda's was relational. He grasped the stakes involved. Yaakov was unwilling to entrust his beloved child to someone who saw the enterprise as merely transactional. The Medrash and Parshas Truma, speaking about the apparent oddness of God's asking us to build a dwelling place for him in our earthly abode, makes the following comments. It's like a king who had a, one child, an only daughter. The king came along and married her. He wanted to go back home to his kingdom and take his wife with him. Amar Lo, he said to his son-in-law, Biki shenasati lecha yechidisi, my daughter that I've given to you, she's my only child. Lifer shlimena eni yachal, I can't separate from her. But lomar lecha al titlena, to tell you not to take her with you, eni yachal, lefishi ishtacha, she's your wife, you want to go home. And lezotova asevi, do this one kindness for me. Shekol makom sha'ataholech, wherever you go, kiton echad asevi she'adur etzlachem. Make me a little room that I can stay there. 
I've given you my Torah. I can't separate from it. To tell you not to take it. Wherever you go, make me a little little room I can live in. In comparing this to our parsha, Kadosh Baruch Hu is Yaakov. We can either be Yehuda or Uve, and the Torah is Binyamin. With a degree of reluctance, Kadosh Baruch Hu has agreed to allow us to take his daughter. That is the Torah. But he asks from us a small place amongst us within which he can dwell. That is, he wants a relationship with us. He wishes to be in our lives. But for this to work, we have to be Yehudas, not Ruvains. We have to make space in our lives to the Rabboni Shalom. And our connection to him has to be relational, not transactional. There are many of us, there are many in our community whose relationship with God is primarily transactional. For some, it is almost pagan-like. It's a deal with God. We obey you, and you make things good for us, and you give, to the th- give us the things we want. A quid pro quo. For others, often self-styled intellectuals, they obey God's commands regardless of what they believe because being part of a religious community brings many benefits, what we call socially orthodox. And this is what Rabbi Hanina ben Antigdas warns us against in the Mishkan Avos. That's a relational connection. That's, excuse me, that's a transactional connection. The relationship between God and the Jewish people is often portrayed metaphorically as one of the marriage. Think about our tradition in reading the book of Shirashim. Can you imagine a transactional marriage in which a spouse what views what they do for the other as a quid pro quo? They're counting how many things they did, what the other person is doing for them. Or where one appreciates having a spouse because they think that being in marriage is good for people. It is. A good marriage is not relational. It is not is is relational, not transactional. Speaks to I believe that modern orthodoxy has a profound problem with talking about God. Some of us like to talk about halacha. Some like to talk about lambdas. Some like to talk about mitzvos. Some like to talk about mas and tovim. But there seems to be a strong avoidance about talking about a personal relationship with the Rebona Shalom. I understand that many, if not most of us, reject a simple portrayal of God that in some quarters sounds a little bit like Santa Claus. I also understand that many of us recoil at the hubris of identifying God's intervention in the world. I can explain that happened because that was why God did this. But I do not think that these <coughs> reservations absolve us from seeking a personal relationship with their bonus shalom. As the Medrash tells us, God has given us his Torah, but he did not disappear after he gave it. After he gave it, his only child to us. He wishes to dwell amongst us. The Torah is meant not to be solely transactional, but also to create a deeply personal relationship. And this is not simple. Normally, if I'm being careful, I try to present you with a very specific ask. Sometimes it's implicit, sometimes it's explicit. But this kind of an ask is very difficult. I can't tell you that I have a precise roadmap to a personal relationship with God. Everybody's journey is different and deeply, deeply personal. One which is, in a minimum, uncomfortable to articulate and perhaps even impossible to put into words.
But there are two things that I am pretty sure about which need to be part of the road. Number one, God has to be in our vocabulary. It feels sometimes in our circles we talk about halacha and Torah, but we never talk about God. It's as if it's a dirty word. And number two, that to create a personal relationship with God requires more than just an intellectual engagement. There has to be an emotional engagement as well. I'm also fairly certain that it's not a straight road. There are twists and turns and detours, and sometimes backtracking. I suppose the best that I can ask is that we all consider whether we have, or are striving at least for a personal relationship with God. And if we don't, whether or not this is a state of being with which we are satisfied. Dabr HaMelech writes, as a deer yearns for the brooks of water, so too my soul yearns for you, God. The thirsty deer does not contemplate the benefits of water, nor does it think that it is drinking so it can move on to the next activity. It simply yearns for the water, and the same way we should yearn for the Rebona Shalom. And thus, when we look back at our parasha, we can understand why Yaakov dismissed Ruvain's offer, but accepted Yehuda's. Because Yehuda understood that his promise to protect and bring Binyamin back alive was not merely a deal, an exchange, a transaction, but rather was about a relationship between a father and son. So too in the spirit of Banim Atem Lashem Elokechem, that we are children to God, we should seek a connection with the Rebbe Shalom through his Torah, which is not merely transactional, but rather which reflects a deep personal relationship. Adkan. The uh, break is coming up. For some of you, it's a little bit farther away. And uh, obviously, some of you will be very busy for the next couple of weeks, the next week preparing for the Shia Bechina. Uh, and uh, after that, preparing for your college finals and papers. And then you will have, hopefully, a couple of weeks of downtime. Um, the downtime is very important. Um, people really do need a break. We cannot work, you know, constantly. Boys, uh, they come and say, "All, all work and no play makes John a dull boy." Um, so we do need we need downtime. Um, but the bonus shalom is always with us, um, and it means that even during the break, uh, we're supposed to be growing and have odas Hashem and yiras Hashem. Uh, it may mean that we don't spend as much time learning, as much time intellectually engaged. Uh, but that actually should still be part of our thing. In fact, it's the time where you're not forced into any mascaras, and therefore you have the freedom uh, to, to explore where you wish to explore. But I think it's very important to remember, as we learned earlier in this month, the Chiyav of Talmud Torah is every day, and Kriyash Meshel Shachas and Kriyash Meshel Avis, So, whatever it is that you uh, are going to be doing the break, please make sure that continuing your 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 Hagisa Bayom Halayla is part of it. Uh, you sh- I would encourage you strongly to set out a small goal for whatever it is that you wish to accomplish during the break. Uh, and so that when you do come back, uh, on the one hand, there will not have been a hefseik uh, between what we're doing now and what we will be continuing this in the next month. Uh, at the same time, you should come back refreshed and recharged and re-energized uh, to try to have an even more productive time. So anyway, I want to wish you all the good Shabbos. Uh, and a good break and if you need to contact me you know how to contact me